All right, let's pray, let's pray. Ladies in the back, <coughs> and Strutzel. Uh, if you could all keep it down back there, that'd be kind of you. I'm kidding, my wife is sitting back there, that's why. Yeah, I wouldn't talk to any woman that way. <laughs> what do you need, Yonker? Oh, man, you're standing right there like you're waiting for something. All right, let's pray. <laughs> the only reason I let that slide is because you're the vice president. Okay, let's pray. Teach us, O oh Lord, teach us to walk as your Son walked on the earth through ministry to death, through death to life, and glory at your right hand. Through him we pray. Amen. All right, uh, three quick things. One, sign-in sheets. I mentioned to the women on Friday, please make an effort to sign in. We're really trying to keep accurate records of this um, for, a, for a variety of reasons, but we're trying to keep accurate records. So please, please, please mark yourself in. If someone comes in late, you see them, mark them in, please. The other thing, and this is where I, actually the next two things are very important. Um, if you've ever been around, you know Augie has a very good assistant right now, Augie the janitor. Um, we've had various assistants for Augie in the past. Some have worked out, some haven't. You know, some were Packer fans and Augie got him fired. For a variety of reasons, they've left. Um, but this guy, Luis, is an unbelievably great guy. And he really, here's the good thing about Luis, it's like any good assistant. When Augie is gone, Luis can carry the, you know, carry the baton like nobody's missing. Um, Luis, his brother, and Val, help me out here, his brother lives in what city? Plainfield. He's been in the prayers. Jose is his name. He's been in the prayers. Um, house burned down, like, to the ground, to ashes. Um, they have, you know, yeah, insurance will come through. They're going to have some other stuff. But financially, he's been out of work. The house burned down. They've got tons of issues. Luis came to me and basically said, um, hey, is there any way you can help my brother out? And I didn't tell him we'd do this. So as far as he knows, he thinks we're going to pray for him and go on and on. I would like to take this Sunday's uh, collection at this group to help Luis's brother, Jose. Um, Luis, like I said, he's as good as the day is long. He's a devout Catholic, great guy. He loves us. He loves especially Martha because she can speak Spanish with him in the mornings. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable to watch. They go back and forth. So if you have a couple extra dollars, you know, think of this in some sense like you did for the people from Kenya. You all turned out, I think we got $700 that day. I don't expect $700 today. But if we could write Luis a check for, you know, two or 300 bucks and say, this is from the church, that would at least be a good start. It would at least give his chance, you know, his brother a chance to take his kids out to dinner because they have no place to live right now. So um, if you can help with that, that'd be great. The other thing, the men's retreat is coming. Vicar, when is it? 22nd and 23rd? 22nd and 23rd. Now here's the thing. It's like everything else in the church. The men, now I'm speaking just to the men, so the women, you're off the hook. The men all said, we want, to, we want to retreat, we want to retreat, we want to retreat. So we planned a retreat. The vicar, you know, the vicar was a car salesman. So the vicar worked, as he would say, a smoking deal on this thing, okay? Like he always says to me, what would it take to get you in this car today? So I said, hey, listen, you're not trying to sell me. So he, he worked out a deal with the Loyola Retreat Center. They just bought this place, Loyola University. They have a chef who worked in Chicago who's now on staff there. Very good, I mean, cook-to-order type stuff. They'll let us have beer, that's a plus, and um, they're going to let us use their chapel to say some prayers, and I know some of you love wall camp, but this is a little nicer than wall camp. Would you say it's a little nicer than wall camp? Yeah, okay, a little nicer than wall camp. For how much? 45 bucks. Now, I don't know what you paid at wall camp, but I presume it was around that number. Now, here's the problem. We've gone to great lengths to, like, bang down Loyola University on the price, and now, take a guess at how many men we have signed up. 20, <laughs> okay? 
Now we said, we'll have what, 50? We'll have 50. So one of two things will happen. Either we'll have 20 guys and we'll say, well, we're not going to do it, and then 20 guys will be upset, or they'll say, yeah, you can come, but now you owe us, we booked 30 rooms for you that you're not going to use, you owe us for 30 rooms, because they basically shut the place down for us. So I beg you, if you're a man, um, women, I'd love to open it up to you, but it just can't happen at this retreat. It's, you know, we'll do something else some other time. If you're a man and you have not signed up, the vicar said, let's just hold up the postcard. I said, they'll look at it, they'll think about it, they'll say, we'll go home and think about it, and nothing will happen. So I'm actually going to pass around a sign-up sheet. If you're a man and you would like to come, 45 bucks. If 45 bucks is tough, and believe me, I realize that is tough for some folks, we will make it happen. Sign up and let me know, and we'll find $45. That's not a big deal. Basically, we want the men there. They've asked for this. It's a good thing. Please sign up, um, and we'll have some fun. How's that? Is that okay, Jen? Yes. Good. Okay. Thank you very much. This, you know, uh, this makes me a little nervous working with you, actually. Yeah, it, I hope it's going to be beautiful. beautiful. Okay, so over to Jen. Hello. I'm Jen Cole. Can everybody hear me? For those of you that don't know me, and that I have a loud voice, my name is Jen Cole, and my husband is Steve, and we have two kids, Beth and Matt. And Joe Hansen asked me to tell the Bible story for today because he felt the need to run the Chicago Marathon. <laughs> now, as a runner myself, the next time you see him, give him a pat on the back. Because I don't know that I will ever run the Chicago. I will not. I got way better things to do with four hours of my day. Okay. So he says to me, we're going to give you a few options. And one of those options was the story of Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her sister-in-law, Orpah. Not Orca, not Oprah. She doesn't sing opera. It's Orpah. Okay? And the story of Ruth and her little family is located in what book of the Bible? Anyone? Anyone? Raise your hand. Ruth! Yes. Yes. The story of Ruth and Naomi and Orpah is generally about in-laws and choices. Choices and in-laws. And Steve's head is now looking at the ground because he knows where I'm going with this. He actually doesn't. He has no clue what I'm about to say. So anyway, choices and in-laws. Kind of like, let me ask you this. Do they allow beer at well camp? I don't know. Uh, I, I think you can, you can sneak it in. You have to sneak it in, though, right? Whereas the, the guys at Loyola are like, bring it on! Okay, this is great, great segue. Okay, choices and in-laws, like when a Catholic girl of Polish and Lithuanian descent at whose family parties the beverages, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, were on the kitchen table with glasses and things so that one could serve themselves, marries a nice Lutheran boy of German and Austrian descent at whose family parties it wasn't on the kitchen table. Let's just say that. So choices 
and in Lot. The, when the scripture, oh, I'm, you know what, I started reading your stuff. I'm like, man, I didn't type that. Okay, Ruth, who knows some about Ruth? Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, for those of you who don't know. And the key verse in the story of Ruth is when Ruth, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, says to her mother-in-law, listen to this, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you, my mother-in-law, and me. Seriously, that is what she said. Whether I would say that to my mother-in-law, I don't know. She's a very nice lady, don't get me wrong. She's a very nice lady. I love my mother-in-law. So Naomi, her mother-in-law, is married to this guy, Elimelech. Elimelech? Elimelech. 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 And they have two sons, and they moved from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine at the time, and life wasn't really good in Bethlehem, so they moved to Moab. They had two sons, and the two sons married Ruth and Orpah. Okay? Well, then what happens is all three men, for whatever reason, die, leave the women, and there's no relatives for Naomi in Moab, so Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because right now I don't have a really good chance of finding any relatives for myself in Moab, so I'm going to go back and find some relatives in Bethlehem. Now, the thing of it is, is it's because in Israelite law, for those of us good Lutherans who all know, if a woman becomes a widow, she then is expected to be taken care of by the husband's brother. Brother. Well, her husband's gone. She has no relatives. He has no brother. So she goes back to Bethlehem. Orpah and Ruth follow her. So they're all walking, they're walking. And then Naomi says, you know, I'm from Bethlehem. You guys aren't. You're a Moabitesses. You don't believe in my God. Really, there's really nothing for you in Bethlehem. So why don't you go back to Moab, and I'll go to Bethlehem. Really, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Well, Orpah takes her up on it and says, okay, I love you dearly. Thank you for this opportunity, but I'm going to go back to Moab and be with my own people. And Ruth says, what I just told you, I don't want to be separated from you. Your God will be my God. She chooses to go with Naomi to Bethlehem. She chooses to worship Naomi's God. She chooses to stay with her mother-in-law and go to Bethlehem. Okay? So, they go to Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi are walking to Bethlehem as the grain harvest begins. Okay? Now imagine there's these two women in Bethlehem. Grain harvest is beginning. They have no men to protect them. They're in pretty bad shape. The one silver lining in all of this is that according to Israelite law at the time, the corners of the fields were not to be harvested. And additionally, as the harvesters were going along and grain is dropping on the ground, they are not to pick it up. It is intended to be left for the poor so that the poor can be fed. They would then glean, it is called gleaning the field, and they would pick up the wheat that fell um, on the ground, and then they would also pick up from the four corners. They were allowed to do that. So, 
Ruth says, I'm going to go get some food for us. So she chooses to go out to a particular field. As luck would have it, that field belongs to a guy named Boaz. Boaz. Boaz is the owner of this particular field that Ruth chooses to go to and glean. Now, as luck would have it, Boaz is related to Naomi. She found a relative, okay? Didn't know it at the time until she goes back to Naomi, Ruth, at the end of the day. Naomi says, how's it going? Ruth says, it was great. I got this great field, and the owner was so nice to me. He was a great guy. And Naomi says, really? What was the guy's name? His name was Boaz. Naomi says, oh, this is great. He is my relative. He can be my kinsman redeemer. Anybody know what a kinsman redeemer is? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, I know. A kinsman redeemer was a man who was a relative of the widow that could choose to take that widow on in some way, shape, or form. In this way, it would be for Boaz to marry Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and thereby he would be protecting Naomi. Well, since he thought it was really neat that Ruth was taking care of Naomi in such a wonderful way, gleaning his fields and taking care of this woman in his clan, he said, this is a pretty good thing. So he was very, very kind to her. So when Ruth tells Naomi, and Naomi says he can be a kinsman redeemer, Naomi's got to send a message to Boaz that, hey, we got an arrangement here we can work out. So what she says to Naomi, or Ruth, rather, Naomi says to Ruth, when Boaz is sleeping tonight, after he's asleep, after he's had food and drink and whatnot and goes to sleep, I want you to go up to him, take his shoes off, and lay by his feet. And then he will tell you what to do. Now, when I was in high school, I would have called that kinky, but it wasn't. This, and, and, and I, when I first read that, I was like, ah, ooh. But it wasn't like that. It was a business arrangement. That's all it was. It was not sexual in any way. He, it was not a message to Boaz, oh, use me however you want. That was not what it was. It was simply a message. Am I right? If I'm going wrong, you better tell me now. Okay, fabulous. Okay, so. <clears throat> First woman elder? <laughs> anyway. I'm choking. I'm choking. Okay, so. It was strictly a business arrangement, but luckily for, the, for Ruth and Boaz, in this case, it did become romantic after time passed. So Ruth sends the message, Naomi wants you to marry me so that you can protect her. And Boaz is like, mm, okay, cool. I really like this chick. She's really nice. I think I might do this. However, there is an issue. There is another kinsman redeemer in the family that Boaz knows about. And he's got to take care of him first because this kinsman redeemer is closer to Naomi than Boaz is. Therefore, he has the first right to Ruth, okay? So what Boaz chooses to do, because he is a faithful man, he plays it right. And he goes up to this guy and says, look, there's this land back in Moab that Elimelech owned, and, you know, you're the first kinsman redeemer, so by rights it's yours if you want it. And the kinsman redeemer, this other guy, we don't know his name, says, 
oh, okay, well, that's not a bad deal. All right, sounds good. But Boaz says, but there's another part to this. There's Ruth and Naomi. You got to take Ruth and Naomi. They're part of the deal, okay? Well, this guy says, hmm, sweet, but no. Now, we don't know why he turned him down. It could have been because he didn't want to give up the rights to his land in the event that he had a child with Ruth. Okay, so he passes it up and says, no. Okay, so Boaz chose to do the right thing, and he won. He gets Ruth. He marries Ruth. He and Ruth have um, a boy named Obed, who is their son. So Ruth, a Moabitess, an unlikely follower of God, marries Boaz, who, BTW, is a, by the way, for those of you who are not as hip as me, <laughs> Boaz is a descendant of Rahab. Rahab, you may recall, was a former prostitute in Jericho. So we got this Moabitess, ugh, marrying the son of a prostitute from Jericho. Ugh. They end up having a baby named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, so on and so on and so on, equals Jesus! Yes! So the moral of the story is, is that God gives us free will. We make choices. God uses those choices for his needs. God makes choices as well. And he chooses to use everyone, even Moabitesses and the sons of prostitutes, in his service. You want me to continue? We'll go home now. <laughs> Beth, how old are you, Beth? Nine. But her mom stands up and Beth leans over and says, this ought to be interesting. <laughs> that is a tough act to follow. Um, but we'll see what we can do. You should all have a handout. Those of you ladies in the back who are chuckling at this situation right now, you're up next week. So. Uh, all right, well, two things. First, a confession. Last week, uh, someone said to me afterwards, hey, great Bible study on the prodigal son. Too bad we were talking about Jonah. Yeah, see? Some of you thought that as well. So look at point number one on your outline, and we'll move down from there and talk about choices, too. Um, I won't tell you as many jokes as Jen. I can't believe someone actually said kinky in a Bible study. That was interesting. <laughs> Hope that goes on the radio. Um, and it wasn't me who said it. This is so great. So often, I'm the one who says stupid stuff in this group, and you all write me emails and say, I can't believe you said that. Well, guess what, friend? It was you. <laughs> this is so good. This is... Shoot, you can preach next week for all I care. All right. <laughs> all right. That was a little joke for you who are overly Lutheran. Okay. Uh, Steve, where is Steve? <laughs> There he is, that's right. Actually, my in-laws were going to be here today, and it was good they were, because she... Uh... <laughs> All right, so from last week, let me say this. Last week, the reason we went to the prodigal son was, because for those of you who are Lutherans, you know, uh, the number one read way of reading scripture is scripture interprets scripture. So when you have a text that's tough to figure out, like how does being vomited up out of a whale mean resurrection, you look to another text that says the exact same thing, and you go from there. So... Last week, you see there the carryover, death, repentance, forgiveness, resurrection, and then from week one, live it, right? So uh, Jonah dies in the whale. By the way, if you didn't know that, and I know 
Part of the reason we didn't go to the whale was Joe didn't start there, which was fine. But if you didn't know this, uh, Jews in the ancient world always believed that Jonah died in the whale, just like they actually believed that Isaac was slaughtered on Mount Moriah. Okay, So we think Isaac was sort of let off the hook. No, the Jews believed, and their texts say, he was slaughtered and brought back to life. In the same way, they believed Jonah died in the whale and was brought back to life. So death, repentance, Lord, I shouldn't have done this, forgiveness, great, I forgive you, resurrection, vomited up, and then he goes off, and the two words you remember were rise and go, rise and go, to be resurrected, to live resurrected. That's right out of our confessions. If you go home today and you Google up the Augsburg Confession, that's what, when I went face down on this altar, I said I'd vow to uphold. Article 4, which all of you Lutherans know is the chief article in all of our Lutheran confessions is to be resurrected, to be justified. Guess what Article 6 is? This is the one no Lutherans like to read. It's called New Obedience. Isn't that great? You're resurrected, Article 4. Article 5 is you have pastors to deliver that resurrection. And Article 6 is you now live in new obedience. That's the Jonah story. Death, repentance, forgiveness, resurrection, live it. Now, this week, you live it by what you choose. As luck would have it, you said that a couple times, as luck would have it, do you know the Old Testament reading for today is this text? I don't know if that was planned or not. Obviously, it wasn't because Joe gave you a choice. But, um, you know, as luck would have it, the Old Testament reading for today is from R Ruth chapter 1. So listen for that. Or if you've already been here, go back and read it again. Now, the story, all about choices. It's interesting to me, um, if you talk to Lutherans, Lutherans always get rubbed the wrong way when you talk about good works, when you talk about the saints. Why? What's their nervousness? That's too... Catholic. But Lutherans rarely get rubbed the wrong way when you talk about making choices. Now, deep down, making choices is uniquely what? Not Lutheran, not Catholic, but evangelical. Down the road, you know, whose building is down the road? Billy Graham Center. And Billy Graham, you know, at the end of every service said, if you haven't made a decision for Jesus, make the decision now. And Lutherans say, oh, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, right? Lo and behold, as luck would have it, Billy Graham is wrong. Why is Billy Graham wrong? Ephesians 2, chapter 1. So look at your thing there, the story, all about choices. When the scriptures speak of choices, they do so within the context of death and life. Dead folks can choose nothing, at least nothing of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what's the Greek word there? You've heard this a million times. Necros, which means that's a fancy biblical way of saying what? Roadkill. So go out today and look at the squirrel that's smushed in my street and ask that squirrel if it can come back to life. There is no chance in that it'll come back to life. Dead folks can't choose to come back to life. Visit the ER today. Some guy comes in flatlined. He's not going to grab the paddles and shock himself. He needs someone else to do the work for him. So Billy Graham... As much as, you know, even my grandmother, may her soul rest in peace, would order his catalog and get the calendar every year, and she thought Billy Graham actually signed the picture. He didn't. Even though people love him, he's wrong. Now, here's the sad thing. Lutherans are wrong in the same way. Guess whose picture is two down from Billy Graham at the Billy Graham Center? You won't ever believe this. Walter A. Meyer. Isn't that great? Now, why is Walter A. Meyer's picture at the Billy Graham Center next to Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. Why is his picture there? 
Great evangelist, and at the end of his radio broadcast, what would he say? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? Which is no different than Billy Graham. Guess what Walter A. Meyer, may his soul rest in peace, never read? Ephesians 2, verse 1. You are necros, you are roadkill, you are dead. However, and this is where Jen was very good, yet, living folks, that means resurrected folks, last week Jonah folks, have been enlivened in will and, in fact, can choose between right and wrong, between what's good and what's best. Joshua 20, 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. So here's the thing. Lutherans are wrong if they say you can choose to follow Jesus. Lutherans are also wrong if they say you can never choose any good. Those are both mistakes. You can't choose to follow Jesus because you're dead as roadkill. Yet when the Lord raises you back to life, guess what? Every day you wake up and the choice is whose? Not the Lord's, but yours. Okay? The choice is not the Lord's, but the choice is yours. The Lord forgives you. He raises you. He vomits you up on the side of the beach, just like he did to Jonah. And then he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Which means some days you are going to choose badly, poorly. Some days you will choose wisely. Okay? Some days you will choose wisely. So the point of the Ruth story is to figure out how she chose wisely. Now, look at the trouble. Here's the trouble. Incurvatus in C. This is a term from St. Augustine. It's also a term that Luther liked to use. Um, deep down, it just means that you're always turned in upon yourself. You're always curved in upon yourself. So it's like, you know, uh, in uh, Snow White, when the witch looks in the mirror, what does she say? Who is the fairest of them all? What's she hoping the answer is? Her. When you look in the mirror in the morning, by nature, this sort of corrupted but being redeemed part of you, the part that's still attached to Adam and Eve, looks in the mirror and says, who's the fairest of them all? It must be me. In curvatus, in sea, you're always turned in upon yourself. So deep down, and just think about this in your own life, deep down, we often think about ourselves first. How many times have you started a sentence with, well, I want, or I wish, or I think, right? And this is the same for me, so I'm not just banging on you guys. It's the same for me. Everything is about me. Deep down, we often think about ourselves first. Deep down, we are more like Orpah than Ruth. Now, note well, here's what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that Orpah folks are bad folks. Okay, Just like if you wake up in the morning and you struggle to think about others, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means they're looking in before they're looking out. It means their perspective needs to be reoriented. If Joe were here, he'd say alignment. If Bruzek was here, he'd say orbit. Since I'm here, we say resurrection. It's all about turning and changing your perspective. That makes sense? This is the point of the Ruth story. The Ruth story is, yes, she's a child of God. That's not in question. She's not choosing to be saved. She's not, she's not following Billy Graham. What she's choosing is, who will I follow this day? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or will I go off with my sister-in-law? and follow all the other gods. That's the choice she's making. So, second bullet point under number three. Once we have been freed from ourselves, and I was struck last week at the font, I was struck for two reasons. One was uh, Dr. Andrew Bartelt, a professor at St. Louis, did the baptism of his grandchild. I was struck by how emotional he got during the baptism. 
he's sort of this, you know, if you don't know anything about him, he's sort of, you know, one of the preeminent, preeminent biblical scholars in the synod and gives great papers and talks to millions of people. And he comes here and he's in tears as he baptizes his grandchild. Why is that? Because it means something different when it's your own kid, right? So I was struck by that, and I was also struck then reflecting on you know, Claire's baptism. I didn't baptize Emma. Reflecting on Claire's baptism, the part that struck me the most was not the baptism. The part that struck me the most were these words from the right, live always in the light of Christ and be ever watchful for his coming, that you may meet him with joy and enter with him into the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end. For me... In baptizing my own child, it wasn't so much about getting them saved. Here's the thing. My wife was in church every week. She had the Eucharist every week. She had the word you know, pushed into her ear every week. If that child died, that child was saved. For me, it was about doing what Jesus bids and then pushing her out to live the life that Christ has called her to live. Live always in the light of Christ and be ever watchful for his coming. Okay? That's all of you. We're not sitting here talking about what it means to be forgiven. You all are forgiven every day. What we're trying to talk about is what it means to live forgiven, which involves choices. So, still in point number two, it's not just about choosing between right and wrong, though you do that every day. When you make up and make the sign of the cross, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're making a choice to follow God. Nobody else, no idols, but God. But also, and this is the part that gets more sticky, but it's also a choice between what's good and what's best. At the end of the day, good things are good things. They're not bad things. But there's also a distinction in the Christian life between what's good and what's best. Okay? Between what's good and what's best. And choices are hard. This is the next point. You know this. Why are choices hard? What's the first reason making the right choice is hard? First, you have to know what the right thing is, right? It's the reason little kids struggle to make the right choices all the time. Why? They don't know what the right thing is. So first, you have to know it. Give me one second. Go ahead. What's the next thing? And you have to want to do it. You not only have to know it. So once, so the first thing is to know it. How do you know what the right things are? You read your Bible. You come to church. You come to Bible study. You take the Eucharist because best is defined by Christ. Best is not defined by you. It's not defined by me. Best is defined by Christ. So the first thing is, you have to know Christ. And you know Christ where Christ promises to be present. Altar, pulpit, font, church, and frankly, in all of you. But, as Rebecca said, the tough part is not just knowing it, but also wanting to do it. Why is doing it the hard part? Doing it is the hard part. Because it involves taking a risk. I mean, just think about your life over the past couple years. Think about your life going forward, even. Think about even your good Christian friends. Has there ever been a time when you've made a decision about the Christian life that even your good Christian friends say, I can't believe you made that decision? Like, I'm going to give 10% to the church because that's what the Lord asks for. And your friends say, shoot, we want to buy a new car. I can't believe you gave 10% to the church. Or, um, I can't believe you didn't go to that party and gossip with all the other people. You really missed out. Choices are hard because choices involve a risk. If you choose something, even if it's best, that other folks disagree with, what happens? Relationships are broken. 
I mean, this, is, this happens all the time. Yes, Dave. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, we think about that, yes, what Dave said is very helpful. It not only involves wanting to do the right thing, but it involves a personal relationship, a personal commitment with the person you're talking with, you're involved with. This is why it's stunning to me the way parents parent their children is not the way they interact with others in the church. When you parent your children, regardless of whether or not they like it, you want them to do what's best. In the church, what's the first thing we think of? Not what's best. What will Sally say, right? What will my friends think? What will the pastors think? What will Jesus think? Now that's the right thing, what will Jesus think? But we often think about what others will think because we're curved in upon ourselves. Who's the fairest of them all? Make sense? So, a risk that others might not like your choice and consequently relationships may be broken and, and this is the other thing, and sometimes we don't think about this, you know that you can choose what to do. Can you ever choose the consequences? Never. The consequences are uncontrollable. You can choose what you want to do. You cannot choose the consequences. This is uh, ancient philosophers would also often talk about the, the human life as radically contingent. Radically contingent upon what? Upon what you choose. Because whatever you choose will have either a positive or a negative consequence in your own life. And you can't control the consequences. You can't determine how many years you'll spend in prison. You can't determine how many days you'll sleep on the couch. You can't determine that. You can determine to say what you said or not do what you did. Okay? You can choose, but you can't choose the consequences. Yes. Is the basket moving? Where's the basket? Hopefully someone has about a million bucks in that basket right now. The basket is moving. Thank you very much. If you chose not to pass the basket, there's a consequence for that. <laughs> Jose doesn't get any cash, and we want Jose to have some money. It's full. That's good. Okay. Think about, think about what Ruth was giving up. And this is the point Jen tried to make. Yes, she chose to follow her mother-in-law, and that is strange enough. But think about what Ruth was giving up. Her goods, her sister-in-law, her future, her potential husband and children. Why did, why did uh, Naomi want to send Ruth back with her sister-in-law? Go back and get married. Go back and have kids. Go back and find somebody else. I'm not going to give you any grandkids. I can't have kids. I'm not getting married anymore. But choosing what's best, last bullet point there, begins with a bond between lover and beloved like that between Ruth and Naomi. The only reason Ruth chooses to follow Naomi is because of the text that Jen read. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That reminds you of what right in the church? Marriage. Marriage. Until death parts us. Every human relationship, while not on the level of marriage, should it re at least reflect the relationship in marriage, particularly in the church. This is why in Ephesians 5, St. Paul gives this whole long bid on marriage. Husbands love your wives. Wives love your husbands. Treat each other this way. And then he says, at the very end, 
Lo, I tell you, a mystery. Lo, I tell you in Latin, a sacramentum, a sacrament. I am referring to Jesus and the church. Whatever goes for marriage also goes for the church. So the target then. The target is to say yes to what's best. And saying yes to what's best means saying yes to Christ. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth 4. If you have no Ruth, if you have no best choice, you have no Christ. This is radically contingent. If there is no Ruth, she doesn't choose to follow Naomi, you have no Jesus. This is the way he works. And I would propose to you, the very last bullet point, saying yes to Christ means giving him incarnation in the world. If there is no Val and there is no good choice, guess what? There is no Christ in the world. Christ is here because he promises to be here. How does Christ get out there? He's not in the trees, at least not for you and for me. How does he get out there? All of you sitting right here. Boom. To choose what's best gives Christ incarnation in the world. If there is no you, if there is no me, and there is no choosing what's best, there is no Christ in the world. And that makes for a terrible, terrible place. Okay? Any questions? Yes, George. Exactly. Exactly. Jose, that's right. Yep. Yes, right. Exactly right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Anything else? Any questions or comments? Um, I don't know who's up next week, you know? Any of you want to go next week? No, I'm kidding. Uh, do you have a question, Rebecca? Go ahead. Well, this is all over the scriptures where the Lord, I mean, part of the, well, yeah, I could say a lot. Um, the very last point, you give Christ incarnation in the world. Uh, first of all, Jesus always works by means. So he works at bread and wine at the Eucharist, water at the font, spoken word of the pastor, and human beings. He always works by means. Um, but you know in the scriptures there are times in the Old Testament and the New, the scariest thing is where he says, you all haven't been faithful, so I'm going to go to somebody else. Now, that, that's the kind of stuff that you should lie awake at night worrying about, whether or not you've been faithful, because if not, the Lord will choose someone else. Um, so you have that all over the scriptures. Now, it's the same, the same is true for today. Think about the ways in which he's blessed you and all of us as a community. And I'll give you one example. The way he's blessed us as a community 
is he's given us the Eucharist six days a week. I can tell you this for a fact. That happens in no other Lutheran church in the United States. For a fact, I can tell you that. But he's come here six days a week to give us his body and his blood. Now, if we don't embody that, body and blood, to the ends of the earth, this was Pastor Nelson's sermon. It was also the, the end of the prayer of the church today. If we don't embody that, there may be a time when he says, I'll go someplace else. So how do, you get, how, do, how do people see Jesus in the world? We don't walk around with the host every day, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. That'd be one way for them to see Jesus. How do they see Jesus? They see Jesus because he's become one flesh with you at the Eucharist. That's how they see Jesus. You are, I mean, if you can understand this in the right way, don't get, you know, don't get all rubbed the wrong way because it's a Catholic thing. You know, they put the host in the monstrance and they walk around and they say, this is Jesus. Guess what? That is really Jesus. Okay, one. Two, you're no different than the monstrance. You walk around and your body gives adoration to Christ and as people see you, they should see Jesus. And if they don't, Jesus will go someplace else. So that's how you give him incarnation to the world. Incarnation just means he takes on flesh and blood. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. He promises to pop down at the Eucharist. He also promises that he'll come in you. If you want him to incarnate in the world, if you actually want to touch Jesus, come to the Eucharist and walk out and live the life he's called you to live. That's it. Anything else? Yes. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Everything. Exactly right. Yeah. I agree. I completely agree. Did everybody hear that? Did you hear most of it? The point is, sometimes it gets troublesome because you always feel like you're trying to hit a dartboard with what to do next. I think you're right. I think for some people, so then the medicine for that is a different thing. My guess is most people, this is, you know, G.K. Chesterton once said, it's not that the Christian life has been tried and found wanting. It's that it's never been tried. Okay? Most people, and I think this is especially true for Lutherans, we have such a rich theology of what it means to be forgiven and beloved by God, to be justified. What we don't always understand is what it then means to live in that life. So here's my guess. There are some people here who try and try and try and try and try, and they feel like they're always hitting the dartboard in the wrong spot. Guess what the answer for that is? Come to the Eucharist and don't worry about trying. It's all going to be okay. There are many of us here who don't ever try to hit the dartboard. We just say, I come to the Eucharist and it's all okay. No, actually, it's not okay. It's coming to the Eucharist and trying your best to hit the dartboard. 
So for, this is why pastoral care is always specific. For someone like you've described, I would say it's all going to be okay because guess what? You have a relationship between the lover and love, lover and beloved, and for then other folks here who say, I've never tried this, just go out and do it. It's going to be okay. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. It's not about you. Even when you are doing it, it's not about you. Um, but you give of yourself freely to be used well by Christ. And however he chooses to do that, he's going to do that. That's exactly right. Okay, everyone okay? All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll be on to the next thing. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Jen.